Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for joining me here. It is Wednesday, June 17th. On today's show, a new study from the BC Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives raises concerns about an under-regulated and under-researched and largely privatized assisted living sector here in BC. I'm going to be joined by the president of Licensed Practical Nurses Association of British Columbia to talk more about the concerns that have been raised within that study. And to end off the show today, well, it is a Major League Baseball edition of That's Whack Wednesday. But... To begin today's show, I am joined by Kamloops Mayor, Mr. Ken Christian. Ken, how are you doing here today? Very good, thank you. Good, thanks so much for taking the time. So I want to start, I guess, by just sort of asking a bit of a scary situation at Council yesterday. Um, I'm sure it's too early to get an update on the condition of uh, Mr. Trowin at this point in time, but how is everyone else? I'm sure members of Council and staff who were in attendance were a bit shaken up, but you were able to get back to business fairly quickly. So how is everyone doing from what you could tell at this point? Yeah, it was a very uh, scary situation yesterday. A member of our staff uh, had a medical emergency, and uh, we uh, had to uh, deliver first aid, and then uh, they were uh, taken by ambulance to Royal Inland Hospital, and I don't have an update uh, on the condition. It certainly uh, disrupted our council meeting for sure, and uh, we were able to uh, get back uh, after about an hour delay and uh, completed our business. Yeah, well, just know that everyone here at NL was definitely concerned, and our, our thoughts are with you guys and, and with the, those who are impacted at this point in time. So um, now you were able to get back to business pretty quickly, and, and the big thing uh, on the agenda, at least in my opinion, was the use of gas tax dollars here, almost $2 million in Community Works funding being paid to the city here this month from the feds. Um, just uh, initial thoughts on the fed that those, that money is actually coming through. There was some question of whether or not the, the city would actually be getting that full $2 million or close to $2 million, and it is going to be coming. So just to, first and foremost, I guess, happy to see that money come through. Yeah, the, the Community Works Fund, uh, you know, originally when the uh, COVID-19 pandemic struck, uh, we were not sure about the uh, continuation of uh, some of our grants, certainly our gaming funds, uh, you know, are in jeopardy as well as uh, these funds we weren't sure about, but the federal government actually uh, came up uh, and made us whole uh, in terms of uh, both the amount of the uh, Community Works Fund as well as uh, fast-tracking the delivery of the funds. Usually it comes in two installments, and uh, they're going to uh, pay us the full amount uh, in June, and that uh, allowed us some flexibility with regard to some of the projects that we have cancelled. Now, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of these, but from what I've gathered, uh, $63,000 is going towards those upgrades for the pickleball courts, which I know uh, the pickleball club here in town had done a lot of work to make sure they paid for a whole bunch there. So natural uh, progression for the city to chip in just a little bit here, 63000 pretty reasonable, uh, as well as uh, some money now for a ring road or a new ring road at Mac Island and um, 730000 for a summit overpath. So is there any particular reason why those projects were chosen? And uh, just happy to see that work move ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly with the, the pickleball ask, it, it was relatively small, but I think it's indicative of the fact that the uh, pickleball uh, club had uh, certainly satisfied some of the conditions in terms of, uh, you know, teaching youth to play pickleball and uh, looking at regional kinds of tournament play, uh, as well as contributing to uh, the enhanced uh, pickleball courts themselves. So uh, that was a no-brainer in terms of the 66,000. The active transportation piece for the Summit Overpass, uh, that's been something that we've been talking about for a long time in terms of the access to and from Thompson Rivers University. And uh, you will uh, remember many, many uh, issues related to people jaywalking across the Summit Connector, a very dangerous situation. And this uh, money will go towards the overpass. The overpass is going to cost more than the 731000 but uh, it's a start towards that and it'll allow us once we accumulate enough money to get that project underway. Um, you know, the uh, ring roads at MacArthur Island, anybody that's been out there really, uh, I think, would understand why they needed to be rebuilt. Uh, but that was one that we hadn't previously had on our Community Works uh, grant funding list. But, you know, there's a, a window of opportunity because of the suspension of tournament play and, and uh, relatively low activity uh, out there in, in terms of uh, organized sports. So we're going to take that opportunity and uh, fast track that uh, project. Uh, we'll try to do both phase one and phase two. And uh, that, I think, will enhance uh, active transportation around around Mac Island, and certainly there are a lot of people from the North Kamloops and Brocklehurst neighborhoods that use that facility on a daily basis, and uh, I think that this will be good news. Yeah, I think so, too. Like you said, anyone who's driven around that road uh, at Mac Island knows it's something that could definitely use a bit of a facelift. So happy to see that going through myself, and I'm sure many others who use that park quite frequently are happy to see that happen as well. Um, Captain Jennifer Casey Memorial, of course, uh, you know, tragic situation that happened here. Uh, one month ago here today on on Wednesday. Um, So really appropriate timing, I think, that this actually did come up here at Council. Of course, unanimously voted to move ahead with a permanent memorial. Um, So where is Council now, I guess, in this process here today? Now that we've seen Council give the approval to have a permanent memorial, what's next in the the process to getting uh, a permanent structure or a permanent memorial put in place uh, near the Kamloops Airport? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Director McCorkle will, uh, you know, lead on that initiative. And uh, certainly what we have to do, in, as with any park planning initiative, is, is to, uh, you know, look at the space available and what would be appropriate and, and, and suitable. And we have to run that by uh, both the uh, family of Captain Casey, of course, as mm-hmm. well as the Royal Canadian Air Force, and in particular the 15-wing Moose Jaw, uh, the Snowbirds unit. And, you know, we want something that would both commemorate uh, the 50th anniversary of the snowbirds as well as uh, the tragic loss of life for Captain Casey and you know it it has to be something that's sensitive uh, something that would be uh, artistic and something that would be permanent and appropriate so you know uh, I'm confident that they'll be able to uh, work that up into a uh, submission that they would bring back to council at some point in time. Do you have any idea in terms of when a, a project target date for something like that would be or is it just too early to say? 
Well, you know, there's a bunch of construction that's going on out there. Certainly we have our Tronquil Road project that's underway, uh, as well as uh, we have the TMX uh, line going through there. So uh, as part and parcel of completing those, that park will emerge. Uh, But in terms of the design, I think that that's something that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, could come up uh, sooner than that. Uh, Interestingly enough, we had our airport authority meeting uh, last week, and, uh, you know, uh, we had a debrief on the airport's response to the crash. And, you know, one of the things that was mentioned was we never got a chance to actually thank the Snowbirds for their performance in Camelot's on May the 16th. And, and that was that was inspirational as Operation Inspiration was intended to be. And, uh, you know, I think uh, those that saw it, uh, you know, felt a sense of pride and a, and a sense of relief at a time during the pandemic that we really needed that uplifting. And it was in that context that the next day uh, was just that ironic uh, tragedy that, that occurred. So, you know, I, I think that that's something that we have to uh, recognize and memorialize in our community, just as we've done many other uh, things that we've had to endure. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a great point. It does, uh, definitely gets lost in the shuffle here a little bit, just what did take place to uh, try to have some some motivation here, Operation Inspiration, as it was called here in, in Kamloops the day before, you know, such tragic events took place. Um, Ken, well, one of the things that I kind of missed here when I was trying to follow along with Council was uh, in regards to an early learning advisory group. I know there's been a lot of talk in this town about um, issues around, um, you know, child care and, and a lack of child care spaces. I guess, what is the intent of this early learning advisory group here? Yeah, so the uh, UBCM, Union of BC Municipalities, uh, gave us a $25,000 grant to study uh, daycare needs in Kamloops, and uh, that study was presented about a month and a half ago to council, and, uh, you know, it indicated that there's a, a bit of a deficit in terms of access to child care in, in Brocklehurst and in Westside, and, and emerging needs for different kinds of child care, infant care and, and uh, after-school care and, and some of the various classes. And so uh, yesterday uh, we are, uh, had the opportunity to uh, uh, look at the report and, and made some uh, recommendations with respect to uh, putting an early learning advisory engagement group uh, together that we will facilitate. And we wanted to use uh, certainly the child care licensing office at Interior Health as well as uh, child care providers within the community and advocates for quality child care uh, to you know, sit with us on that and to help to uh, guide the future development of childcare in Kamloops. Awesome stuff, Ken. And one more question unrelated to council before I let you go, but we did get the word uh, here earlier in this week that uh, ride hailing, uh, Cabo Ride, is going to be coming to Kamloops starting on Canada Day. Um, you know, I'm sure you're probably sick of having the conversations about licensing and all that kind of stuff when it comes to these ride hailing companies, but just wanted to get your thoughts on this service finally making its way to Kamloops. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's good news. Uh, you know, I've been an advocate for uh, ride hailing, uh, you know, ever since the beginning. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm uh, glad now that uh, a number of companies actually have been issued licenses to operate in the Camelops area. And, uh, you know, we want them to do that in accordance with provincial regulation as well as our city licensing requirements. And, uh, you know, good on them. Uh, I, I think that the uh, demand is there, and I think that it will uh, provide Camelops residents with another safe alternative to uh, get home. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll do this again soon.
Thank you very much. That was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. All right, well, it's time for me to take a bit of a break here. And when I come back, I'll be joined by the president of the Licensed Practical Nurses Association of BC. We're going to be talking about some issues when it comes to assisted living centers here in British Columbia. A new report from the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives BC office lays out some concerns with that sector and the over-privatization, among other things. So stay tuned, and the Jeff Andrea Show will be right back. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks for being with me here on June the 17th. Now, many seniors, of course, want to live in a more home-like environment, and assisted living is an option that can help to provide that. But a report released today by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, BC Office, indicates that many seniors and frontline workers are dealing with a poorly coordinated sector that increasingly resembles under-resourced and more lightly regulated long-term care centres. To talk more about this type of home environment and the concerns that may come with it. I'm joined by the president of the BC Licensed Practical Nurses Association, Anita Dixon. Anita, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm really excited to be part of this. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to start by asking, you know, there's a number of ways we could start this conversation, but I'll start by asking about staffing levels at these assisted living centres. In your experience, are these types of homes outfitted with enough workers to be able to properly care for those living in these centres, right? I mean, they're supposed to be sort of a more independent living quarters for those who are, you know, uh, residing in these homes, but sometimes maybe they need a little bit more care than maybe first thought. Exactly, and so the staffing level is very minimal. So the concept, the way that originated, was that it was to be more on the independent. As the person was aging in place, they might need very, you know, minimal, uh, maybe assistance to put in, you know, eye drops in their eyes because of the, you know, arthritic um, limbs, or they may need just to help, you know, punch out their meds. And, and that was it. So it was just be like five minutes here, maybe just, to, you know, a quick standby and then the housekeeping and the two meals a day. But as people have progressed and they love the concept of assisted living and that's been, you know, further promoted since it started in 2002 was to, to live it and age in place. And that is a wonderful concept. And that's one that we all want to support. That's, you know, very good for a lot of seniors. It helps them with their wellness. The issue has been, though, as they start to continue aging place and want to stay in their home-like environment, is they're needing some more supports as they start to, to decline in mobility, decline in being able to um, even their different dietary needs as you know as they start to age. That's it, or their disease processes, whatever they had in the comorbidities. The the increasing of needs has definitely been uh, prevalent, but the staffing has not been able to be addressed. And so what the, it's just basically growing more where the staff are running. I've literally watched one single carriage running, trying to assist so many of the, the seniors in, that they've now gotten to really care for. And then the LPNs, you know, as they're supervising and they, they're 
missing their breaks, they're not being able to meet their needs, and it's ethically pulling on them, just the same stories as what we hear in the long-term care sector. Mm-hmm. So when, when people first come into assisted living homes, I assume that there's an assessment of some kind that's done to make sure that that's an appropriate fit for them, but does they ever get reevaluated to see if, you know, maybe you should be moved out of long-term care? Is there ever any type of, you know, reevaluation of people's needs to say, okay, you've had, you know, good care so far in assisted living, but maybe it's time to move on to another environment? Does that ever happen, or is it just up to the care aides to say, now this person needs more care and I have to start providing it? Yeah, that's a great question. And so the, the requirements of assisted living is to have it, an assessment done. And the assumption is that it's to be done by a nurse. So the nurse, you know, could be, but the structure in assisted living is, is that it could be uh, the general manager. Then not all of the staff members. So you might have one general manager that might be a nurse or may not be a nurse. And so that's a challenge. Or you might have the resident service manager or that what they call health and wellness manager might be the licensed practical nurse. And they may not have done that first greeting, that first screening, because a lot of the uh, private companies uh, just want to be able to fill their rooms. So it's basically saying you take your own risk. And that comes back to the language that, that what this report highlights is that living at risk. And then you sign a waiver saying you understand that when you enter, and if you cannot direct your own care, um, being able to you know, safely live in this environment for yourself as well as your, your neighbors and, and the other residents, then you will be having an exit plan given to you and you will have to leave. It will be up to you to deal with that. So people accept that quite you know, quickly because they're trying to find a place for their loved ones. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a, an awkward and that's one of the things that need to be re-looked at is how do they come in? what is the exit plan and then do they have a good way to be able to move to the next step so and there's a lot of gaps at that point there's a lot of gaps yeah it sounds like there's uh no not enough maybe um uh pressure i guess put on people maybe if if uh, an assisted living home is no longer the right spot for you to be that maybe there needs to be more uh, pressure put on uh, those people who are making those decisions to move out of that kind of environment if that's no longer fit for you um it's not fair i guess really to to put those extra needs and those extra care requirements onto those employees who are working in these facilities but that's basically what seems to happen you're exactly right and then the employees you might have you know i've seen staffing levels where there's one carried on for a whole building during the day and the expectation is to be you know servicing all of these people helping them literally sometimes just walking down the dining room because they can't find their way down to the dining room but you know that's their enjoyment and it's, and then they're running to, to be able to do that or you might have two carries if you are lucky in these environments but then in between they're supposed to be helping doing laundry they're supposed to be doing housekeeping um, it's just even some of their duties is, is quite blended in trying to maximize the minimal amount of staff that you have. So that's where it becomes problematic because then you're the, the actual person, the employee is stressed because they're saying, I'm supposed to have this load of laundry done, but Mrs. Jones just called on her lifeline and I need to be able to go and help her because she's now struggling to get dressed. And so there's that, that whole pull. So I think that that is absolutely, and then if they're needing more help, but they're still waiting to be placed as you've, you know, really well, uh, indicated is that there might be a length of time of months. I've seen months where then the, you know, long-term there's no beds, they're on the waiting list. 
but now now they're needing a lot more help and you don't have workload that's that's not heard of very you know easily so um it's it's a difficult it's seen, it needs to be reviewed um and of course, when we talk about any of these types of environments, whether it's long-term care, assisted living, uh, how how big of an issue is it, um, you know, that these are uh, often pl- times run by the private sector and, and sometimes, you know, profits seem to be more important than the actual care being provided? Because I know that that's all, always a problem when it comes to health care. Um, is, is that a significant issue probably in, in, in this type of environment as well when it comes to assisted living? The, the need for dollars and the need for profits kind of outweighs the importance of actually caring for individuals? Yes. Uh, I, it's unfortunate to acknowledge that, and it has been coming out, you know, through all of the, the you know, current reports for the long-term care, but it is absolutely the same uh, issues that are in the assisted living. So it, the unfortunate part is when you have a private owned and operated it is their uh, stakeholders it's their investors who they have to be they're the top priority to satisfy so when you do that of course that the the down the down spin on that is that the minimizing of the employees to try to deliver as many services as you can with as tight of a staffing model as you can so the the challenge is then your your who's prioritized you know and unfortunately with privates the prioritization is to make sure that there's a profit yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah. Um, of course, when we go through this pandemic here, of a lot of issues and concerns have, have really come to the forefront and been highlighted as a result of this pandemic. I was wondering, because I'm trying to think specifically off the top of my head of sort of what might be some of the things that would be more noticeable as we go through COVID-19. I was just wondering if maybe you have anything that you could highlight or, or think of where COVID-19 has made it worse and has really brought out the fact that there are concerns within these assisted living centers. Uh, you know, what, what, has, has COVID-19 made anything in particular um, appear more uh, worse off, I guess, than maybe people yeah. originally thought. Yeah, I, I think that the, the key, the key um, message that's coming out is that the employees are having to work at multiple sites in order to make a living. And because, especially in the private, they underpay because a lot of them are non-unionized. The people who are actually acquiring these jobs are people, mostly women, single women or women from that have immigrated to the to uh, Canada, who are so appreciative of just having a job. Right. They don't want to say anything. And I cannot tell you, as a manager of one of the facilities, is that when I was interviewing, just to try to get someone for a bath team, because the the needs were there, is that these people were work, this would have been their fourth or fifth job, wow. and that they were going from job to job to job. So I think what what this pandemic has highlighted is how many you know we talk about there's a, there's a carry shortage, but it's really hard to evaluate when they're working four or five jobs. So if one person gets sick, that's five jobs now that have that one person not working for them. That's hard, and there's and they are moving. You know, unfortunately, that the we've we've seen the evidence that that's also how transmission can be done mm-hmm. as well. And, and I know that's something that uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix has talked about a lot throughout this whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic is the need to have single site plans as to get workers working at just one location because of the, the concerns around things like transmission. And uh, I, I know that they have taken steps here throughout this uh, last three months or so to try to address that. Um, haven't said for certain whether that's going to be
be a permanent fixture. But um, from what from your experience, I mean, you talk about hiring people to do some of these jobs, and that's being their fourth or fifth position. Um, do they need four to five jobs in order to make a living? That's kind of the issue, right? Is they need to have that amount of employment in order to actually earn a living wage. So if you have someone only working at a single site, is it realistic to expect them to accept that job, given the fact that if they can only work at a single site, they may not be able to make enough dollars to support themselves? Exactly. So then we have to be looking at the, the wage compensation and making it standardized, you know, and I think that's the other initiative that's coming even not only provincial, but at a national level is that this has been now, you know, that, that um, Pandora's box has been open on that issue, which is good. Um, and then having, you know, sick time and being able to have, you know, proper benefits, you know, just on a, a health human resource, you know, uh, component, we need to, to look at that, you know, entity. I think as far as, you know, being able to live on that income, I, I you know, for me personally watching, I think that when there's plentiful work, and that's what is that you tend to then start to think, you know, have ex- more dollars. So I think it's having to bring back and also evaluate our own, you know, what is our true living expenses and what is our living needs, you know, versus because a lot of them that I was uh, interviewing, they have family back in, say, you know, another country in the Philippines that they were working and they were able to work so much because their family was back there and they were sending money back, which you have to then, you know, like, well, my goodness, you know, you're supporting a family, you're trying to support yourself and you're working like amount, what about you personally? You need downtime because you are going to get a burnout. And that's, that was where I was coming from. I was imploring on that. You need to have some, some of your own time. So it, it, it is complex. Yeah, very complex. And I mean, we're talking about assisted living. This is supposed to be sort of a nice uh, kind of mix, I guess, right? When you're talking about the need to live as independently as possible. We all want to live as independently as possible for our entire lives if we can. And this is a way to sort of bridge that gap where maybe you need a little bit of care, but hopefully not very much. And you can still have that independence. But if uh, if that starts to erode and you need more care and it falls on the people who are, you know, maybe not uh, in a position to offer the the services that you require they still try to do it and it burns them out and there are a number of other issues that are highlighted by this it's it's really sad and it's it's unfortunate because this is supposed to be a time you know in someone's life when they're in these homes that you know they have some dignity and, and it sounds like it often gets lost throughout this process which is a real shame um we've been talking here for upwards of 13 minutes and i think we could talk for another hour on this uh, is there anything else that you want to highlight though while i have you here um you know if, is there anything that i missed that you think people should know about before i let you go no i, I think you've touched on all of the, the the key points that um i this needs to be reviewed um i think that it runs beautifully right along parallel with with assisted or long-term care the assisted living should be you know a package it should be looked together because they actually integrate with each other so i think you've done a great job and, and that would just be my closing you know comments is that they need to be looked at both as a package so thank you for the interview. Yeah, Anita, thank you so much for taking the time. I think this is an important issue and, and something that, like I said, has been really highlighted as a result of this pandemic, which is unfortunate, but uh, still important that uh, we take these opportunities to to do these reviews and, and try to make things better. So thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. No problem. Take care. That was the president of the Licensed Practical Nurses Association of BC, Anita
Dixon. Yeah, and we're just talking about this uh, report that was released here today by the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives, BC Office, um, basically just raising concerns about an under-regulated, under-researched, and largely privatized assistant living sector here in BC. And COVID-19, of course, uh, as mentioned, has highlighted a number of the issues that come with, uh, you know, assisted care and, and assisted living. And, and in this particular case, you know, someone who is supposed to be in that sort of hybrid model where they can live independently for the most part, but need, maybe need a little bit of help doing certain things. But over time, of course, you know, there is that need to be reassessed to make sure that's still the proper situation for you. And sometimes, you know, there there is instances within this report where it talks about how people go to the hospital and maybe once they leave the hospital, really, they should not be sent back to an assisted living center, but that's where they live. So they get sent back there, even though that isn't necessarily the place where they belong anymore. And then it falls on the care workers to make sure they're picking up the slack and making sure that they're taking care of those people when, uh, you know, they shouldn't be as reliant upon those services, but they have to give them when they're in that home. So a lot of issues that, of course, are coming out as a result uh, uh, of these kinds of scenarios. Now, uh, the report, just before I wrap things up here on this, it does name a couple of recommendations that the province could do, a couple of steps they could take to sort of rectify the situation. Uh, one, immediately enhance the capacity of assisted living registry to enforce the Community Care and Assisted Living Act. Of course, that makes a whole lot of sense. Number two, support a review of seniors assisted living residences conducted by the BC Senior Advocate with support from a multi-stakeholder advisory committee. Number three, establish an expert panel, both academically and uh, practice leaders in relation to care to help shift assisted living from a philosophy of living to a philosophy of relational care. Uh, and there's a fourth one here to address existing and future needs of the assisted living workforce, which of course is probably the major point of all of this. All right, well, I need to take a quick break here. Um, Going to be coming back here, taking a look at uh, what's going on in the world of Major League Baseball. Yeah, they continue to struggle to figure out how they're going to restart their season. The NBA, the NHL, they seem to have figured out a plan. Whether or not that actually goes ahead is still up in the air a little bit, but at least they have laid their plan out on paper. Well, baseball, they're a little bit stuck in the mud. I'm going to be talking more about this in today's June 17th edition of That's Wag Wednesday. That's coming up next. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks so much for tuning in here with me on June the 17th. Today is Wednesday hump day, if you will. It all goes downhill from here, both in the week and on this show. It is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. Now, today, I wanted to talk a little bit about what is going on in the world of Major League Baseball. As a huge sports fan who was dying for content, well, when COVID-19 first hit us, Baseball, to me, felt like the one major sport that could be ready to resume sooner than later. They were already well into spring training when the pandemic shut things down. There was potential plans about how the season could go on, which started right away, right? Those conversations started happening immediately. There was discussions around potential hub cities where everyone could isolate together. There was not a ton of contact in the sport of baseball, right? It's not like football or rugby or hockey or even basketball where you were constantly in close quarters with other athletes and in the most literal of senses making contact with each other. No, in baseball, you're fairly spread out. You're outside with good ventilation. The ingredients to make baseball a go felt to me like they could be put together. But now, of course, we are well into June. 
The NHL has a return-to-play plan. The NBA has a return-to-play plan. The NFL is taking its time to see where things go as they have the luxury of being able to really wait until August to start figuring things out. And yet Major League Baseball appears to be somewhat stuck in the mud. And I think that in itself is a little bit Now, why are they at a standstill? What is it that is holding them back? Well, in simple terms, it's all about the money, right? But to say it in just that simplistic of terms, while it is somewhat of a misconception, right? The impasse between Major League Baseball and its players is simply a fight about dollars. Well, no, it is a little bit more complicated than that. The dispute is more fundamental, right? With the owners pushing for a percentage of total compensation and the union holding firm on the per-game proration the sides agreed upon on the March 26 pandemic roadmap that they had worked out between the two sides. Now, it's easy just to sit here as a fan and say, figure this thing out, right? Both sides are just being babies, and then there is a phrase that I could use, right? There's a phrase that I like to use when talking about this type of situation. That is whack. But I think everyone who just wants to see sports move ahead and have some form of a Major League Baseball season needs to remember that this is the livelihood of everyone involved. Yes, they are millionaires, and yes, I don't have a ton of sympathy for them fighting over that way too much money that they get for playing a game. But if this were to involve you or I and our jobs, we wouldn't be so quick to just roll over and cave in to the other side. It's similar to the lockouts that we have seen in the NHL, right? I remember sitting there and just missing hockey so much. I am a hockey fanatic. And I was just sitting there saying, figure this thing out, guys. Stop being whiny rich people. And I think that that statement is still fair, but it is important to look at it from the perspective of those involved. The standoff is fueled by the fact that baseball is trying to negotiate lower wages and the players are saying, pay us the number of games that you can pay us on a pro-rated basis. The two sides are not talking about the same structure and they will never reach an agreement until they get on the same page with regards to that structure. Me, I just want sports back so bad. And you know what? The players that we're talking about here... They want it to, but they cannot give in. Just because, you know, if you give in now, it means you're going to give in a little bit more later. Look at our teachers in the province of British Columbia. They spent a year and a half negotiating before they were able to reach a new contract. And we're just talking about a general contract for teachers. We're not talking about this specific season in which the Major League Baseball players are negotiating here, which is, of course, happening in the midst of of a pandemic these things take time and concerns about health and safety as we go through COVID-19 make things all that much more complicated but but I will continue to say it and I know that all fans feel the same way I still believe that it is so I will try to understand it and I will try to accept it but I will say it's contradictory to everything that I have just said here in the last four minutes figure it out and bring us some entertainment in what has been an incredibly boring time. This has been That's Whack Wednesday. That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas.
Well, on that happy note, it's about time for me to wrap things up here today. So thank you to everyone who was paying attention and listening here. And thanks, of course, to all my guests for joining me. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday, and I'll be back here tomorrow at noon.